Today we're going to be picking up in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. If you want to join me in your copy of God's Word, we'll be beginning in Exodus 13, 17. In this section of scripture that we're going to be looking at today, one of the repeated phrases throughout this book is found in 14.4 where the Lord says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he will pursue them, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army. So the, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. The name of God is what is being taught about in the book of Exodus. In fact, the Hebrew title of this book is Names, and it's the names who are about the name, the ones who make Yahweh known in the world. And he has been making himself known through revealing himself at the burning bush and in the events of the plagues and also in how he would disciple his people through the Passover festival and the unleavened bread. And as great as the plagues were and as gracious as the Passover was, the sons of Israel would still have their fears they still needed to be guided into the truth. They still needed their God to fight for them and guide them and fight for them he did, which would turn their fears into singing, which is what we're going to see in this text today. So let's begin in 13, 17, and I'm going to read through chapter 14. Now it happened that when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God turned the people to the way of the wilderness, to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in battle array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and shall bring up my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by night, by day, to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might go by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel so that they turn back and camp before Pihaharoth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. 
And Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, they are wandering in confusion in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he will pursue them, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Then the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 choice chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, with strength. And he pursued the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out with an exalted hand. Then the Egyptians pursued them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them by camping by the sea beside Pihaharoth in front of Baal Zephon. Now Pharaoh drew near, and the sons of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very afraid. So the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What is this you have done against us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Yahweh will fight for you and you will keep silent. Then Yahweh said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Speak to the sons of Israel so that they go forward. As for you, raise up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and split it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians with strength so that they will go in after them. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am glorified through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus no one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back. 
by a strong east wind all night and made the sea into dry ground, so the waters were split. So the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses. His chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Then at the morning watch, Yahweh looked down on the camp of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the camp of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Then Israel saw the great hand which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, and the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses." Our gracious Lord, we pray that you help us to see the things that you would teach us from these words, that you would help me to recollect the things that you have taught me, that you would protect me to teach according to your truth, to proclaim it with clarity, with conviction, and that indeed your spirit would convict us and guide us also into all truth, that we would learn the things that you teach in these words so that we would know you as you are, and follow you as you have commanded us. Amen. Beginning in 1317, we see Yahweh's caring guidance of a fearful and fickle people. And he knew what was in the heart of man. Therefore, in verse 17, it says, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was the easiest path and the most obvious path to take. But he didn't do that because he knew that they were fickle. He knew their fearful hearts. He knows that they won't change their minds toward him, but they'll want to go back to the way that things were. They'll want to go back to what they thought of as the golden days of Egypt. He knows that these people don't know how to repent correctly. They don't know how to change their minds correctly. They don't, know, they don't know how to turn into the right way. And that their only hope of repenting correctly is that God himself would turn them in the right way. 
Hence we read in 13.18, God turned the people to the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. God had to turn them in the way that they should go. And the path that he chose for them wouldn't be the most obvious way. It wouldn't be the easy way. It would not be the quick way. But God would care for them through this turning that he was doing toward them. Because it's his character to do so. And it's his will which he declared to their forefathers. Which we see in 1319 where the bones of Joseph would testify to the bodily resurrection from Sheol, or the place of death. This testimony is echoed in the words, God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you, which is how God guides. He guides as Emmanuel. He guides as God with us. God is the God who is present with his people, not at a distance from them. God is the covenant relationship God who guides his people by the light of his presence so that they would walk in him even amidst the darkness. Coming into chapter 14, we read about God's military strategy where he uses the weak and foolish-looking things of the world to shame the wise. He turned the sons of Israel in such a way to make it look like they were wandering in the wilderness, to look like they were unguided. But all of this was to bait the hook so that Pharaoh would go out after them. This was God's game plan for the glory of his name so that the Egyptians will know that he is Yahweh. And the way that Pharaoh responds as the anti-Sabbath servant is recognizing that his slave workers are leaving and he wants them back. So what does he do? He brings out the absolute best war technology that he has in battle for the ownership of a people. And as the text goes on, we read that the sons of Israel were overtook, and they became very afraid. But there's a subtle reversal that's beginning to happen in the sons of Israel, where instead of crying out to their old slave master Pharaoh, 14.10 says, the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. But they didn't cry out in faith, as we'll see with these people as we continue to read of their history. They didn't see resurrection beyond the grave. They just saw a grave. They didn't see the promised land beyond the wilderness, just the wilderness. So they concluded that Egypt is better than the wilderness, that the corruption of Egypt would be better than the purification of the wilderness. So Moses gives them a corrective command when he says, do not fear. And to a people who would rather have the burdensome work of Egypt that needed to be saved, this is what he says to them. He says, stand by 
and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Now, as we think on that text, we learn about Israel's role in salvation. The only thing that they had to bring to their salvation was they needed it. But part of the problem they had is they were resistant toward it. They didn't even want this salvation. So Yahweh would have to do all of the accomplishing of this salvation. They would merely stand and see it happen. We learn here that salvation is of Yahweh alone, and he will not share his glory with another. He doesn't partner with anybody in accomplishing salvation. It's something that's of him alone. But we also notice a pattern of salvation here, and that it isn't that Israel fights to set up a kingdom on earth, and then King Yahweh comes. But rather, King Yahweh fights for them in order to establish a future kingdom on earth. This is also the pattern of the final exodus, which is foretold in the book of Revelation. Um, what is it that we see that happens to the son of Israel's old slave masters? Well, what we see in this text is that salvation means total destruction toward the old master, toward the old way of life. He says, you will never see them again. Well, why will they not see them again? Yahweh will fight for you. In other words, Israel will fulfill what their name means. Their name means God will fight for you. God fights for you. But the way that this whole salvation thing is, works is God fights for you and you stand and see him do it. Yahweh will fight for you and you will keep silent. You will have no fearful words, no grumbling words, no disputing with others, no doubting God's promises, just silence before the glory of the word of God being fulfilled before their eyes. The sons of Israel needed a salvation, we see, that did more than just take them out of Egypt. They needed a salvation that would take Egypt out of them. You remember their complaint was, well, Moses, is all of this happening because there were no graves in Egypt? But this would be met with, in time, they would see a grave, but it would be a grave for where they came from, not where they were going. In their total depravity, the total depravity of sin affecting their thoughts and affections and actions, they said to Moses, leave us alone. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians. They would rather pledge allegiance to the kingdom of this world than the kingdom of God in their corrupt, sinful nature. They needed a Colossians 2 salvation because they were dead in their transgressions and in the uncircumcision of their flesh. They needed God to make them alive with him and graciously forgive all of their transgressions, to cancel the certificate of debt which stood against them and nail it to the cross. And 
they were to look forward in faith that God would use a similar military strategy in the world with Jesus in the cross, where he would once again draw out the serpent who would see a moment of weakness in Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and see it as the time to come and strike at his heel while men were fearful and to use a moment that looked like weakness and looked like foolishness to disarm the rulers and authorities and to make a public display of them and to triumph over them in King Jesus. When you think about how God's salvation works and that God's people stand and see it happen can be a difficult thing, especially when you feel afraid. Because when you feel afraid, you want to run or you want to fight or do something like Peter and try to cut somebody's ear off or something. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this, says, I dare say you will think it is a very easy thing to stand still, but it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier than God's warriors than to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. As you know, the temptation for us is to take up the world's weapons to fight a fearful foe rather than to take up those spiritual weapons which our faithful God has given us. The world and maybe even other believers might think it looks foolish to do so, but we shouldn't think that taking up those spiritual weapons are foolish. I read about them in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, which you'll hear echoes of Exodus in these words as I read it to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. God's glory is revealed in a salvation in Scripture that involves both destruction and deliverance. And in chapter 14, this section of verses 15 to 25, we especially see God's glory and glorifying himself in salvation through destruction. In verse 17, 14, 17, it says, As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians with strength so that they will go in after them. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am glorified through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. We see here that God's plan is to glorify himself in pouring out his wrath and his judgment. 
And the angel of God who is called also the pillar of cloud and fire and Yahweh himself stood both behind and before Israel. You see here that Yahweh is the God of creation, the one who separates light from darkness and is simultaneously light to the sons of Israel and darkness to Egypt. And it says Yahweh looked down on the camp of the Egyptians, just like he looked down at the tower of Babylon when he sent them into confusion. But amidst all of the confusion that incurred under God's wrath, there was a clear confession that was made at the bended knees of the Egyptians where they said, Yahweh is fighting for them. God's glory comes in a weight, which this word glory is sometimes translated as weight. But as the weight of his glory comes down, you see it brings difficulty to enemies, but deliverance to God's chosen, expressing the dual nature of salvation that includes destruction and deliverance. And as this all occurred, utter madness ensued as the Egyptians wouldn't follow the straight and narrow path on the dry land amidst the parted sea, but instead it says they were fleeing right into it. And all the sons of Israel did was stand in silence at the sight of every single one of their enemies being defeated before their eyes, and not even one of them remained. This was the actions of the God who separates the light from the darkness, and he separates the waters from the waters. But you remember the sons of Israel, as they saw the waters parted, they said in their fear, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Well, Indeed, they saw a grave, but they also saw we're not in it. Israel saw the Egyptians dead, not themselves, on the seashore. Israel saw the sea dragon of Egypt drowned on the seashore under the great hand of Yahweh. And this salvation and how it works informs us and how to live today and also view our opponents. You'll hear these sort of concepts in Philippians 1, 27 to 28, where Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you were standing firm, in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. As we heard in the scripture reading this morning in Psalm 136, we 
heard of God's hesed. That's the Hebrew word, which is translated loving kindness or loyal love or his faithfulness or his grace. It's a word that has many facets to it. And it's tied to this event where God shows his loyal, loving kindness to these people, which was based on being faithful to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that would continue to extend to Moses and future generations. And God will be faithful to the Abrahamic covenant to do what he said to do, to curse those who curse you. And he'll do that all the way to the day that we read about in Revelation 20 when he throws the devil, the false prophet, the beast, death, and Hades into the lake of fire. Yahweh will victoriously fight for you even if it means raising the dead so that he can execute perfect judgment and deliverance of his people. Now, it's important to understand throughout the book of Exodus that we're being taught the doctrine of God. This would be theology proper class 101, but in a way it's also soteriology 101. He's teaching us not only about who God is, but how his salvation works. And we learn something of an order of salvation here. Think about which came first for Israel. Did believing in Yahweh come first or being delivered by Yahweh come first? Did God deliver them because they believed in him or did he deliver them and then they believed in him? Notice the order of salvation there and that God didn't wait for Israel to trust him to begin his salvation work. Otherwise, they never would have been saved, which you can see that and how obviously these people didn't want this salvation at all. God alone took initiative for the glory of his name. The people merely saw their salvation and then they believed. Deliverance comes before belief. Deliverance comes before crying out, just like a baby being born comes before crying out to their parents. So it is with the new birth salvation into God's family. God gives us new life, and then we cry out to him. Then we sing to him, which we see is the result in chapter 15. If you'll join me in reading Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh and said, I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Yah is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are sunk in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. 
Your right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your exaltation, you pull down those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it devours them as chaff. And at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The waters were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be fulfilled against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will dispossess them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sink like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have guided the people whom you have redeemed. In, the, in your strength, you have led them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Anguish has seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling seizes them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone. Until your people pass over, O Yahweh, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for you to inhabit, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Here at this section, the book of the names, we move from narrative to song. Now remember what narrative does in scripture is it, it gives us plot and perspective. The narrative explains what happened and the reality of theology and history. But song gives an emphasis on worship. It goes from knowing about something to living something. Theology that is merely known in the head and not lived out is no theology at all. Truth that is apprehended must also lead to worship commended. Songs invite us to meditate on truth, to memorize truth, and songs give us words to express thankful hearts to our gracious God. What did these souls delivered by Yahweh do? 
Well, they responded by saying, I will sing to Yahweh. Why would they sing to him? Well, because they recognized he is highly exalted. And how was it that God had exalted himself? It was by salvation through judgment. It was by hurling the horse and its rider into the sea. It was the display of Yahweh's strong salvation that was the reason to sing Hallelujah, which maybe you didn't know that you knew the name of Yahweh already because you haven't gotten the Legacy Standard Bible, but maybe your day will come. But you do know that name and speak that name, Yahweh, when we sing Hallelujah, which means praise Yah. But you read in this text also that these people were led to sing, Yah is my song. What does that mean that he's your song? Well, the idea here is that he, he's the melody of my life. He's the catchy tune that gets stuck in my head and I just can't stop singing about it. Uh, who he is and what he does is always on the tip of my tongue. And in my leisure, my mind just drifts to thinking about what he's like and singing his song. And what is it that Yahweh is being praised for here? He's being praised for his wrath. He's being praised for his judgment. He's being praised for his deliverance. And we need songs like that that help us to remember to praise God not only for his deliverance, but also for the wrath and judgment that he has brought about. Songs like Rock of Ages, where we sing the words, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Or the other words in that song which say, Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Or the last verse that says, While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. As you meditate and think upon this song in Exodus 15, I want to point out how this is a song that's both personal and corporate in its nature. It's personal and that what's being sung is that he is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, and my Father's God. But we don't want to overlook that this was being sung corporately. This was being sung with one another. They were not just singing this to God to praise him. This, they were singing this to one another to teach and counsel one another and the truth of who their God is and will be. They were singing of the dual nature of salvation, both of his destruction and deliverance. This is a song that teaches who God is and what God does, which is the goal of God's people being gathered to sing at any time in history. It's to sing about who he is and what he does. The goal of our singing is always to sing about his attributes and his activities. In our call to worship this morning, 
uh, Colossians 3.16 was mentioned where the Lord gives us a philosophy of music ministry. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. You see, the intended goal of singing is so that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. It's to help us to meditate and memorize scripture truth. The goal is to give skillful teaching, to give skillful counseling. And so that's what happens when we sing. We're teaching one another. We're counseling one another in the word of Christ. And that singing is not just something to be done on the outside. It's not just because you like the act of singing or the feeling of singing, but it's an expression of something that's internal. It's the expression of heart thankfulness. And it's an expression of gratitude because God has been so gracious in the generous salvation that he has extended towards you. That's what leads us to seeing that he is my strength, my song, and my salvation. We have been saved by God to have the privilege of enjoying singing to God, which should ask, well, lead us to ask the question, what kind of songs does our Redeemer King want us to sing? We don't start with, well, what kind of songs do I like? We want to know what kind of songs he likes. We want songs that skillfully teach his wise word, songs that skillfully counsel the saints according to his wise counsel, songs that give God's people words to express their gratitude back to God with the teaching and counsel that he has given us to richly dwell within us. Continuing to think about how this song helps us to meditate on who our God is, God further reveals his name in 15 verse 3 where he says, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. And in fighting for his people, he loves them and guides them. Now you see that word hesed that we talked about earlier in 1513. 1513, it says, In your loving kindness you have guided the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have led them to your holy habitation. We also see here in God revealing his name that he reminds us that he's supreme over everything, that he pulls down those who rise up against him, whether it be at the tower of Babylon or the superpower of Egypt. He sends forth his anger on Pharaoh who would not send out the sons of Israel, and he forces him to send them because God is the great curse reverser. He's the God who is sovereign over everything in creation, even over evil, even over the evil heart of Pharaoh. We also read in verses 9 and 10 in this song that 
God's enemy proudly rebels against him, saying, I will pursue, and I will overtake, and I will divide the spoil, and my desire shall be fulfilled against them. I will draw out my sword, and my hand will dispossess them. But here's what Yahweh did to such proud opposition. He simply blew with his wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like Yahweh? Nobody. Nobody's like him. Nobody is like him among the gods of Egypt who are all dead. No one is like him majestic in holiness. Not even Pharaoh who claimed to be the Lord of creation. No one is like him fearsome in praises, working wonders and bending all of creation to express his love for a people that didn't even want him. And this event proves it. God's guidance is done in loving kindness. And that's the character of God's guidance taught to us. It's done in loving kindness. It's done in faithfulness. But notice how this is sung without any tension with his anger shown toward his enemy. And there isn't some parentheses in there where Moses and the people thought they needed to apologize for God's anger or maybe edit it out of a future rendition of this song. Uh, God, God's glory includes his loving kindness and his anger. And he is one he cannot be divided even in his attributes. You can't start separating him out into parts and saying, well, sometimes he's loving and sometimes he's angry, but to recognize that he just is those things perfectly all the time. He's never becoming or wavering between them, but his loving kindness is paired with his anger, which you see that while he's showing anger towards you know, his enemies, he's also showing loving kindness simultaneously through his elected people. And his guidance, you see, is not like Pharaoh's harsh burden of works where he's saying, perform stuff for me, do stuff for me, work for me, or I'll make your life miserable. But instead, his guidance is done in loving kindness of works that are performed by him alone. It's a salvation of rest, a salvation of God doing everything necessary for the salvation of his people, which teaches us and reminds us there's only two religions that exist in the world. There's the religion of do and the religion of done. There's the religion of do, which is based on you doing stuff, you working to achieve something. And then there's the religion of done, which is loving kindness, grace-based, where God recognizes that you need it, you don't even want it, but he's going to fix your wanter, and he's going to give it to you, and you're going to love it when it happens. This again teaches about God's salvation, even in the picture of how what happens with the Red Sea, where he destroys their old life and the old master and his weapon, the old master being 
Satan and his slavery to burdensome work and the old weapon, which was death, which they, he would use to keep people under fear and under his slavery. But God's salvation delivers them from that and to new life, to a new master, to a new way of living, which is restful activity in him. And it's a work that God does alone and he doesn't share with another. And he does this by his strength alone and leading his people into his holy habitation. Back into living in that holy seventh day in God's holy place, which you read about in the beginning of scripture, where God rested in his work where God enjoyed what he had done. And that day, and looking forward to it, gives us hope for being a holy people back in God's holy place, which is accomplished by God's majestic holy power alone. And these concepts of holiness and Sabbath are teaching us and reminding us that God's salvation is from the old creation and to the new creation. And it's setting up for what God would teach his people through the tabernacle, which was a, a holy place, a picture of Eden and dwelling with God, where you have to be made holy to commune with that holy God, and he does what is necessary so that you can have that fellowship with him again. But we need to recognize that the exodus isn't over until everything is tabernacle. The exodus isn't over until everything is temple. Uh, the exodus isn't over until an ends-of-the-earth sanctification happens, which is our hope that that has always been God's plan from the beginning, that he would extend his glory to the ends of the earth, sanctifying everything everything into his dwelling place. He promised it and assures it in the Noahic covenant that will enter into that rest. It is a certain hope that we will be brought back to the garden temple, yet forward to the new Jerusalem or pillar of peace, to translate the term. Everything will be holied back to God. Everything that was lost will be restored. Man and land will be restored under God's command and blessing. How else in the song did God express his guidance and loving kindness? We see in verse 19 that the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea and Yahweh brought Back. This is a word that also gets translated to teach the idea of repentance, which I think there is an illustration of how repentance works here, and I'll explain that. Uh, Yahweh brought back the waters from the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. You can see in this idea of repentance that is illustrated here that the old life gets totally consumed and it's gone, but now there's a new path that's set in front of them to walk on. It's a dry path. And you hear this 
combined with how this word is translated in other verses. For example, in 13, 17, you hear, God did not guide the sons of Israel by the way of the land because, as God said, lest the people change their minds. That's that word there. But you're likely familiar with how we talk about repentance as a change of mind. But God guided them a different way because he recognized they don't know how to repent right. Uh, when they get fearful of a war happening, they're going to repent wrong and go the wrong way. I'm going to have to also make them repent correctly and continually. Because natural man only knows how to repent wrongly. In 14.2, we read this word used. It says, God speaks to his messenger Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel so that they turn back and camp before Pi-ha-hiroth. Because God knew that Israel was more apt to turn back to their old ways or a perceived golden age rather than turning to hope in him, guiding them in the right way. Their only hope was that God would bring about a repentance that would totally swallow up their old life and guide them in the way that they should go. Which we read in chapter 14, Verses 26 to 28, this word is translated this way. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians into the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and their horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. Here there's this picture of repentance involving water coming back entirely over your old way of life, your old slavery, the old master, and returning to the way that things ought to be. It means the burial of your old life and the resurrection to a new life. The Red Sea teaches us this concept of baptism. It's a picture of death and resurrection, of being dead in relationship to God, but being raised to being alive to covenant relationship in Him. Chapter 15, verse 19, makes it clear that this change of mind, returning repentance is from the old life and toward new life in God, and that it's God alone who brings this repentance in salvation through judgment when he brought back the waters of the sea on them, and the Israel walks on dry land in the midst of the sea. They were rescued from the waters of death and brought into the land of life, which Scripture builds a theology of baptism and death and resurrection beginning with Noah and looking back to teach us that what happened to Noah happened to Moses at the Nile and what happened to Moses happened to Israel at the Red Sea and this continues on in a pattern until Jesus comes up to the Jordan and is baptized to identify with the people who he would baptize into himself and his death and resurrection. 
It is Yahweh alone who can destroy the old slave master and deliver us into a new land with a new master, which is himself. But as you know, this Egypt land exodus, one of the things that it does primarily is that it it displays the need for a heart sin sort of exodus. Because even though you see this great and miraculous event, what you think would make everybody believe in Yahweh, when you get on the other side of this as we keep going through Exodus, you're like, who even knows that that even happened to them? And as you come to the end of this song in verses 20 to 21, we read of the first ever women's ministry where Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing and Miriam answered them, Sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Here in Miriam's women's ministry, which is under the discipleship ministry of Moses, she has been taught theology through song, which she would use to counsel the hearts of fearful women to recall their mighty deliverance through Yahweh who fights for them. And the fact that you see a woman running out also puts an emphasis and reminder on that Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman snake crusher. It's connecting us back to that idea and reminding us of that as the serpent came and nipped at the hills only to be crushed on the head. Sisters, if you ever find yourself or another sister fearful about current circumstances, might I suggest that you keep a tambourine handy so that you could politely interrupt the conversation about talking about all the different circumstances that are going on in the world and sing to Yahweh in remembrance of his invincible salvation. Exodus 15 is the first singing and song of God's people in Scripture. And it it teaches us and it counsels us in the attributes and activity of our God, because it's a song about who he is and what he does. It's a song that's God-focused and not self-focused, which brings everything into focus. As you know, so often we're like the psalmist who we look inward at how we feel about things and we look outward at all of the things that are going on in the world but we fail to do what most psalms do and go from inward to outward to upward to look at who our God is. We want to look at our inward anxieties. We want to look at our outward circumstances, but to see them in light of looking upward at the God who is with us, the God who is the God of our circumstances which he has ordained. He is the God who guides us, the God who is my strength, my song, and my salvation. He's the God who turns us to answer people concerned about circumstances with statements like what Paul says in Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that 
my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Let's always recognize that our circumstances are always meant for the greater progress of the gospel. And let us help one another in fellowship to remind one another of that and to see how God is working out his salvation in our lives. Exodus 15 is a song and truths that are not sung only in Exodus 15, but they're sung again in the third Exodus, which is in Revelation 15. In Revelation 15, 3, it says, And they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's close in prayer as the music team comes forward. Our gracious Lord, your sovereign salvation eliminates and diminishes the fears of circumstances in this world and brings us to fear you and you alone for the great salvation which you achieved for Israel so long ago in that first exodus where you delivered them out of Egypt. But we know also that it points us forward to that exodus of sin out of the hearts of your people which you accomplished in Jesus' exodus to the cross, that he would circumcise our hearts and point us forward to the day of that final exodus and revelation where you take Egypt out of Egypt, where you take the enemies out of the land so that there's only your family and your land under your blessing and praising you forever and ever. We pray and thank you for a foretaste of that, even as we come to sing of you now and remember that you are not just the rock of Israel then, but that you are the rock of ages. You haven't changed. You are our rock today and will be our rock tomorrow and forever. Amen.